good name for podcasts. <laughs> some ways so, you know. podcasts are feel fuck. Uh, that's what I'll tell people. Absolutely. Maybe it'll help me get a job. <laughs> it's alright. We'll be depressed a different day. Exactly. So, welcome to the Religion and Popular Culture podcast, where we talk about religion, popular culture, and everything in between. I always still feel like I'm some kind of like starting a game show <laughs> every time. Make a game show. That would be fun. I feel like it would have a fairly limited audience. But I mean, so does this. <laughs> Let's be honest. Realistic. (laughs) Um, So, today I am met with Jenny Riley, or Jennifer Riley. I I flip between the two. Okay. (laughs) I'm using my informal name. I was like, maybe I should be more formal and academic. I I have a habit whenever I go to conferences of putting Jennifer down on the the form because I'm like, that's my real name. And then I realise that it just sounds like I'm being told off by my grandma. Um, So, Jenny is fine. So, Jenny, to um, anybody who doesn't know you, could you explain a little bit about what you do? I'd love to. So, I'm Jenny. I am probably just about ready to define myself as a third-year PhD student at Durham University. Just about ready. Just about ready. Um, The psychological barrier is still in place. I like to think I'm still in my second year and still have time. Um, Yeah, going to my third year of um, a PhD, I look at the relationship between work and worldview in the lives of evangelical doctors, the occasional nurse, but mostly doctors, um, looking at how they negotiate their identity um, as Christians in the workplace. Um, Obviously, like most PhD students, I started off with much greater ambition. That was going to be just one of six case studies, but I've I've focused it down because a lot of what I've done in my academic career up to now has been to do with evangelicalism, the reality of Christianity in the 21st century, particularly in Britain, um, and so it seemed sensible not to pay hostages to fortune and to focus in on what I was good at. Um, I use kind of mixed methods qualitative stuff to do that, so I've developed what I'm very pompously calling um, an autobiographical elicitation method, mm-hmm. by which I mean people write a bit about themselves and their faith and their work, and then send that to me, and then I design an interview on the back of that, basically, so that once we get into the interview, we're not starting from ground zero. We've got something to go on, we know each other a little bit, they've thought about things in advance, so they're not just going, oh, that's a brand new question, let me think about that, and give you an answer that's not true, Um, which I found quite effective. A bit about my background, is that useful? Yeah, I mean, it's however much you want to tell me, and share, and and be open about. I was very blessed to do my undergraduate at Durham as well, so when I came back to do a PhD, it kind of felt like coming home, and much as I'm self-aware enough to realise that the department shaped my academic interests in terms of focus on kind of Western Christianity, I also really love researching Western Christianity, and so I'm kind of okay with that, but I did spend a year in uh, exile, self-imposed exile, money-driven exile. <laughs> Um, at Lancaster University where I worked with Linda Woodhead which was fantastic Um, obviously Linda's a a foremost scholar on contemporary Christianity particularly in Britain Um, I did two projects with her I really loved so I worked on Messy Church for my master's dissertation um, which was just great I just got to go and watch people playing with paint 
as fieldwork. I'd do that again any day. Um, I also did a project looking at um, what my mother has since decided to call sad churches, so repurposed church buildings that the church can no longer fund, looking at how people interpret those and how the church needs to take those into account while they think about responding to that in the probably fairly immediate future. So actually, the medicine stuff is quite a tangent. It kind of fell out the sky. Yeah, where did that come from? <laughs> a friend of mine from school. Um, so I went home two days after I finished my finals of my undergraduate, mostly because my flatmates were very keen to get me out of the house, so I wasn't lauding my glory. Um, I had coffee with a friend from school who I had known since I was 11, and she had just started training at that point as a paediatric nurse. Um, lifelong Catholic suddenly went, actually, having worked in this context, I just am questioning everything. Um, I can't believe in God when I've watched people suffer. I thought euthanasia was wrong, but actually I've watched people and I wanted to help them die. Um, and I like to think I was sympathetic in the context, but what I was actually doing was kind of having that light bulb moment where I went, I wonder, I wonder if anyone's researched people like you. Um, a moment when friend becomes data. Yeah, it was a dangerous moment, but we've had, yeah, she's been my data. She's in my PhD, I was literally writing about her today, um, and she's been great about it. So, um, on the off chance she ever listens to this, I am really, really grateful. Um, so, so, yeah, and I went away and basically decided no one had done that particular question to my satisfaction. Um, so a few people have looked at doctors in that context in America, but very few have done it with any kind of thoroughness, and very few have focused specifically on the consequences for faith of medicine. Quite a lot of people looked at how people take their faith into medicine, so praying with patients, ethical decision-making, um, the big ones, um, but very few people had actually looked at you know, the consequences for your sense of self as to what happens when you become a doctor and all of that kind of interface kind of lift off. Um, and so I made the very wise decision to apply for a PhD while I was doing the first term of my master's. And by wise, I mean it was the most stressful month, two months of my life, and I would never do it again, which does not bode well for when I finished my PhD. Um, but I was very blessed to get Northern Bridge funding, and here I am coming back to Durham to work on medicine. It's been a steep learning curve. I have gone from the start of my first year wanting to be sick every time I read anything that was faintly squeamish to I like to think being relatively kind of clued up on how doctors kind of tick and the things they go through one step short obviously of actually bothering and going and doing anything in a hospital. Um, so yeah the medicine thing was quite a learning curve it's been fascinating I think we hold up doctors in really kind of high esteem in British culture Although doctors don't always feel like that, which is interesting. Um, they feel very much just they're not held in high esteem at all, particularly by Jeremy Hunt. But there we go. Um, and so I think for me it's been really interesting to kind of tap into that world um, kind of vicariously by, by talking to people without actually ever having to get any more than fingernail deep in blood. So you have gone fingernail. Yeah, but I mean that was because I cut my finger open. Nothing to do with nothing to do with it. Didn't bring you into the surgery room as no. part of the process, or well, yeah, no. Um, I looked at doing it, but actually I thought, from a methodological point of view, it's probably good to go in with a sense of uh, a bit of detachment or a bit of remove. 
Um, but it is something I'm thinking about potentially for the future. I've been really challenged about the state of kind of chaplaincy and the way in which we kind of, I don't know who we is in this context. Hospitals, as a society, society, the society as a hospital, <laughs> hospital resource staff, I suppose. It's a royal we. Yeah, very royal. Um, but certainly the, the, the impression I seem to get is that chaplaincies are very much aimed at patients and do a very good job, I think, of looking after patients, but there's an awful lot they could potentially do uh, looking after doctors as well. And so that's something I'm thinking about exploring. So maybe I will get more than fingernail deep in blood at some point. But yeah, for now it's been very much a, a sterile form of engagement. So what led you to kind of start developing this autobiographical... <sighs> mm. So I did, I did some pilot work. And that was when my friend did literally become data. So I went home. Um, we had a meal and more than one glass of wine. And then did this interview that I designed that I was relatively happy with. This was really quite early on. We're talking two months into my PhD. I just wanted to get a feel for what, yeah. was, what was out there and um, what kind of questions to ask. Yeah. And that was exactly it. That was exactly it. So I wrote these questions on the basis of all the things I've been reading, the things that have gone into my proposal. Um, some of the bits I've been been thinking about since then and it was useful but I just had this sense that it was not as useful as it could be um, my friend who I call Amelia in my PhD that was not her real name um, did a really good job with bad questions I was, was very proud of her but basically I could see that the sort of things I was interested in were not really the things that were most relevant to her thinking about how her faith and her work were relating um, every so often she was kind of going, oh, hypothetically, I might say this. And I was going, I don't really want to be dealing in hypotheticals, I want to be dealing in the real, you know, the, the nitty-gritty reality of being religious in medicine. Um, and so that was quite good for me, I think, to do that at that early stage, to go, this isn't working, and I'm the mm -hmm. problem. Um, I audited a methods module in my first year, uh, which I'm really, really pleased about, actually, because... Uh, Sarah Dunlop, who was teaching it, was just fantastic. She just did it in such a accessible way and made it really interactive. There's no way you can learn about methods from a textbook, really. I wish there were, but the only way you can learn about it really is by doing. And she introduced me to photo elicitation. Now, it was going to be impossible to take photos into a hospital, and in many ways that would have been nice, but it just wasn't going to be relevant for my research question. So I thought, what else can I do that would have the same effect of raising their awareness of the issues I'm interested in, but also making sure that my research is actually designed around what's relevant to them. And that was where I kind of hit upon the idea of autobiography. Um, doctors do reflective practice anyway. They're encouraged okay. to reflect on their journeys of doctor, how it's affecting them, how they're growing, kind of in a personal development way as well as a professional development way. Um, and so it seemed like it would be a relatively familiar thing for people in that field to be doing. Um, and basically, I just went, let's try it. Let's see if it works. So I got in touch with the uh, local Christian Medical Fellowship group in Durham, thinking, I know how evangelicals tick. I'll start with them and trial this method. And it worked really well, basically. So basically, I'd, everything I'd, I'd thought about kind of materialised. When, when does that ever happen in, in research? It was a nice day. Um, most people chose to write up their kind of autobiographical reflections. I gave them some questions as kind of stimuli for that, but they weren't restricted to that. Again, to make sure whatever they were saying was relevant to them rather than just relevant to what I thought was, was important. 
Um, but one guy um, audio recorded his, um, his ideas, his reflections, his stories. And that got me thinking kind of even further um, because I could, I could hear all the emotion at work right. in what he was saying. He was talking about, you know, some pretty powerful things, you know, judgment after death and how we grappled with that as a doctor. Um, and it made me realise that actually there was something really powerful in that, that tangibility of that voice that I wasn't getting. You know, the, the, the written diaries were not bad and they were useful in that they suited the people who wrote them. That was what they found most useful. Um, but this guy, um, yeah, really pushed me. And so since then, I kind of developed not only that particular case study into my, my whole PhD, but I adapted the method to make sure that if people wanted to audio record their reflections, they could. Um, it's more transcribing for me, but hey, that was I signed up for that. That's fine. I've done... I counted, I've done 220,000 words of transcribing for this PhD. I'm like amazed I have fingers left. Anyway, it's good practice. And if I'm unemployed by the end of this, I can become a transcriber. That would be soul-destroying. Um, yeah, no, let's not, let's not think about that. Maybe temporarily. Um, so yeah, so it was, um, it was very much based on wanting to achieve something quite specific and combining resources that were already out there, but in a way that I don't think has been done, or if people have been doing this sort of thing, they haven't been writing about it in journals. So autobiographical elicitation, you heard it here first. Yeah, because I was because I one of the problems that I have always found with participant level, like where the participants are kind of helping out with mm. that kind of level of research is that quite a lot of the time they don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I guess it's useful that you grab something that was already mm. present because I was about to ask is how many people just didn't do it. So the eternal problem with qualitative research with people, but particularly with doctors, is people are busy and shockingly your research is never highest on their agenda. It's ridiculous. Shame on them. Shame on them. <laughs> Why is this not automatically at the top of your to-do list? Um, so actually I was really overwhelmed by how many people were willing to do it. It did require me to be quite flexible with timings. So if you were trying to collect this kind of data really quickly, abandon ship this, this is, is, isn't going to work. Um, there are a couple of people who I've just kind of wrapped with and just done their interviews, and they've taken the best part of nine months to get from A to B. But I did the first round I managed to do in a couple of months. But that was, like, I had to be quite pushy. It did not suit my personality at all. I was sitting there going, hi, you're volunteering your time, but also you need to volunteer it faster. Um, <laughs> so, but I've had, so I've had a couple of people um, pull out. Um, a couple that's just been, yeah, I don't have time to do this. Um, a couple of people actually just found the subject matter was a bit too tough and troubling. I felt really guilty. But then I was like, doctors are dealing with much worse, I hope. <laughs> my taste in life's on a slightly pushy PhD student. Um, so... Yeah, one, one person in particular had since left medicine, wasn't working it anymore, and just found it was opening up too many kind of old cans of worms. Right. And that, you know, I can't, can't argue with that. I'm not going to sit there and go, no, you must open up your wounds. Um, <laughs> nice little metaphor. Um, so, so, yeah, but I think I've been quite overwhelmed by how willing people have been to give up their time. I mean, I say time. Most people write between two and four sides of A4 for this. So it's not masses, but it's enough enough of that interview it's about a hundred times more useful than it would be otherwise and I think they find it quite cathartic they always 
again, you know, I was quite shocked. Uh, you know, I was throwing a few questions at the end of an interview going, you know, how have you found this? Has it been useful? And everyone's saying, yeah, this has been useful for me. I've never really articulated these things before. And the golden sentence, I'd really like to read this when you're finished, which means someone needs to give me a publishing deal. <laughs> I don't care who. Anybody will do. Um, so yeah, so they seem to have found it useful for them. So it's been not just a purely kind of selfish um, process in that sense. So have you found much consistency with how people kind of integrate religion or I guess deal with religion and their work reality? Fortunately, yes, because otherwise this PhD would be very difficult to write. Um, so the, yes, there has been. Um, Mm, which, which particular entry point to go with? So my overall thesis, as it's emerging at the moment, is that broadly speaking, people either find or work very hard to create affinity between their work and what they believe. Um, and they'll take all sorts of different strategies to achieve that. So I'm writing a chapter on compartmentalisation at the moment um, and looking at the various different ways that manifests. And one way is literally they'll get to a career stage where they have to make a decision about what medical specialty to go into, and they'll go, I cannot touch that with a bar to The two big ones are obstetrics and gynaecology, because um, they can't handle abortion, and psychiatry is the other one, which is interesting. And it's often to do with the relationship between religious delusions in patients presenting with psychosis and their own kind of beliefs. And so I've got one example where a doctor talks about treating patients who believe they were told by God to go out and harm people and she just couldn't process that so she went psychiatry is not for me so in one sense like they will just pick careers that suit them because right. broadly speaking medicine's about helping people and healing yeah. and kind of carrying out what they see to be biblical mandates in a very practical tangible way that suits their skill set and so to that end medicine in general is a broad brushstroke really really fits and that's not one of the problems they struggle with but when you're looking at particular specialties things get a little bit more more complicated um a lot of them go into gp and hospice care because those work for them they have right. that affinity that's almost kind of natural rather than has to be uh, worked at um but then sometimes things get a little bit more complicated so ethical issues come up a lot um, I've spent more time thinking about abortion and euthanasia in the last year than anyone should have to. If people looked at my search history on my laptop, they would be quite concerned about my interest in euthanasia regulations around the world. Um, but there you go. Um, and it's interesting that, you know, kind of bro broadly, broadly speaking, it, you know, there's a bit more nuance and that's what my PhD is about, but broadly speaking, there are two different ways of handling those ethical problems, aside from just going, actually, my faith is flexible enough that abortion isn't a problem. Um, and shockingly, yeah, some evangelical doctors don't hate abortion. Um, read my PhD for more, or my conference paper. Um, but broadly speaking, they'll do one of two things. One, they'll operationalise their faith in vocal, active opposition to those trends. So, you know, if, if they perceive that abortion is becoming a norm within medical culture, which a lot of them do, and that's probably an argument to support that, they will actively say, I will not sign this paperwork, and I'm going to tell you why I won't sign this paperwork. And some of them go so far as to, you know, signing open letters and joining political activism against um, 
not so much the legalisation of abortion, because that's kind of a done deal, but particularly the changing of abortion regulations around um, people, uh, babies with uh, disorders and changing the abortion limit from the current law, which is 24 weeks gestation. So that's one way they do it. And the other way they do it is basically allowing their ethical position to be thrown up, to be questioned, to get much more complex and muddy than a Channel 4 news reporter would ever tell you that an evangelical has. Um, so they'll sit there and they'll go, right, I have these beliefs. Usually that they've been taught and not questioned up to a certain point about the sanctity of life and God creating um, everybody in their mother's womb, like it says in Psalm 139. I really hope no biblical studies scholars listen to this. It's Psalm something. Um, so they've got those beliefs and they've been brought up to believe that that's good and true. And then they encounter the reality of an abortion clinic. And there's this one woman who, actually two women, and, and it is interesting that it's been women who I've had the most profound conversation with abortion. Uh, maybe that's no coincidence at all. Yeah, I was about uh, to say, it might, <laughs> might be um, a link there. Yeah, it just occurred to me. Um, and both of them were basically broadly brought up to believe that abortion was wrong and then went in and it was talking to the patients. They just said, you cannot talk to these patients and come out the other end going, abortion is wrong and must never, ever be legal. Um, so a woman I called Gwen, who first qualified as a doctor in the 1960s, so she was part of a pretty early contingent of yeah. female qualified doctors in, in Britain, um, was treating people either side of the legalisation of abortion in England and Wales, and then Scotland afterwards. Um, and she treated a patient who came in after having a backstreet abortion, uh, who, who had a punctured uterus and bled out on the table. Uh, and Gwen recalled quite clearly, and you could see it in her face when we discussed this in the interview, um, we both kind of sat there going, what have we just done? Um, she recalled having to swap her surgical clogs for, for Wellington boots to deal with the, the volume of blood in the, wow. in the surgery. Um, and she just looked me square in the eye and went, you do not forget something like that. And she shifted her position. She said, I have to throw this up for consideration and ended up taking a much more kind of situational view of abortion, treating every single patient on their own terms. And it was only when she felt that the culture had shifted so that she had to sign abortion paperwork without having seen the patient where she drew the line. She said, that is where I'm stopping being involved with this. Nothing to do with abortion, it's to do with the individual patient. And then the other woman I called Mel, who was an A&E nurse, um, said it was just the sheer task of having to wheel female patients, often very young and very vulnerable, down to the abortion theatre, that two, three minute journey would be enough for her to have the contact and understanding and empathy with women who are often in very similar situations to herself. And at that point, she, she describes going from kind of a conservative evangelical unquestioning conviction to a, a position where she was like, actually, we have to be able to debate these things and not be told what to think. Um, and Mel, interestingly now, uh, is a, a minister, Baptist minister. Um, and she said that was such a formative influence on her theology much later in life when it mattered, you know, how she approached other people on issues like this. Um, yeah, so that was, those are just a couple of really great stories where they just, they looked at an issue and went, I cannot see it in the same light because of these experiences. 
Um, so yeah, so you've got that, that kind of drive to affinity, that oppositional evangelical logic, which is not by any means just true of doctors, but also those evangelicals who are willing to kind of kind of buck the evangelical stereotype, I suppose. And you know, I don't believe in the evangelical stereotype. Um, partly as an academic, partly as having grown up in an evangelical church. Um, but it's been really profound in this, this PhD. So many issues, particularly the big ethical issues, where they are not these, dare I say it, American, angry, polarised people who just unquestioningly take what the Bible says, as if that's a self-evident thing anyway. No, they're, they're really complicated, emotional, questioning human beings who will talk and... You know, you can see it in their faces and hear it in their voices, how difficult this has been for them, that they've had to go, life is much more complicated than the black and white theology I've been, I've had preached at me. Um, and it's trying to get down to the nitty gritty of that process that I've been particularly like really enjoying in the recent months. Yeah. From a researcher standpoint, how do you cope with having to listen to such emotional stories and really deep I don't want to say baggage because that sounds almost dismissive. No, no. But you know, to, like um, like the story of um, yeah. the bleeding, you know, that's so visceral that you're having to not only listen to the first time, but then also listen to again as you transcribe it and then read it over and Absolutely. over again. How how do you manage? That's <laughs> uh, a good question because, like, generally speaking, I'm not a very emotionally robust human being. Um, my husband will have to tell you that. Um, it's interesting. I'm lucky, fortunate in that the doctors have usually had to process it themselves anyway. So I'm getting a version of the story that's already not fully been rationalised, because the emotion is still there, but it's been tempered, I suppose. Right, been processed, processed in some way. Processed, exactly. Yeah. Processed over here. Uh, sorry, <laughs> sorry, really sorry processed. Um, sorry, darling. Um, <laughs> On the other hand, it's, it's a level of exposure. I mean, doctors talk about becoming desensitised to, to death in particular, but to, you know, all sorts of horrible things. And some of the things they talk about are, are pretty horrible. And I think, to an extent, I've become a little bit desensitised. And this really ran home when I actually told that story um, of the woman with a punctured uterus at a conference um, that we were both at. Um, and I could kind of see the people in the room going, whoa, that's a horrible thing. And I was just going, ah, oh, she came over with a punctured uterus and she bled out on the table. And actually, that really made me stop in my tracks and go, actually, you need to let this really sink in. Because mm-hmm. at that point, I'd written about this story this, um, that Gwen told me so many times, because she was one of the earliest interviews I did. Um, and so I kind of found, yeah, I kind of found myself getting a bit desensitised to it. And I almost felt like, right, now it's time to to go back to the audio recordings again, listen, yeah. remember what's going on in these in these stories. Um, and then occasionally I will just go and hide in the, the, the bathroom in, in my office and just have a bit of a cry. Um, I'm not ashamed to say that. Yeah. Um, because, you know, these things are, are quite horrible. And, you know, I'm getting to an age where my grandparents have very severe dementia and I have friends who are, you know, struggling with infertility and wanting to get pregnant and you know these issues are, st- are ceasing to become those kind of remote academic distinct issues which I can go doesn't bother me they're becoming a little bit real you know not the dying of an abortion no but it's, I it's, that would never happen again yeah but um yeah there's, there's, there's a degree of 
to which I've kind of grown with them. Yeah, because that's the thing when you study humans as a human. <laughs> we have to do. I'm sorry. You know, it's, <laughs> of course I'm a human. Um, uh, you you tend to find the connections even when you didn't think mm. there would yeah. be them. Yeah, and it's been interesting because obviously, I, mean, I mentioned I grew up in an evangelical church, and I still consider myself an evangelical. I usually put some qualifiers in there. Um, when I'm talking to most people, kind of open evangelical or um, academic evangelical, whatever or whatever that means. Um, but it's been interesting because, as I say, when I started this project, things like abortion, euthanasia, transgender, LGBT issues, um, prenatal detection of genetic diseases, all of these things were really abstract. And again, I've been brought up in a church where I've been kind of taught what to believe. And I like to think of myself as quite a critical thinker, and I definitely am not just a abortion is wrong. I've never had that view. I've always been the awkward Sunday school kid who went, oh, maybe it's a bit more complicated than that. Um, but actually, they've really pushed me, these doctors, to change and reevaluate and critically evaluate my views as a believer, as well as as a researcher. Um, and to an extent, I'm going through the same process that they're going through. I've gone from relatively unexamined, kind of notional beliefs, where I thought I had a firm sense, to a process, and it is a process rather than a moment, whereby you just go, this is complicated, and I'm going to wrestle with it. I'm going to let it take time. You know, these kind of light bulb transition moments are very rare in my data. It's not a huge data set, but no one's going, right, and this is exactly the day when I knew that euthanasia was right. Um, Gwen is actually a real exception. And even then, I think there was more of a process, and maybe that story kind of catches. Yeah. Um, but that was the kind of apex moment she articulated. And so for me, it's been, yeah, it's been fascinating, particularly with abortion very much back in the news in a very kind of acute, often very polarised way. I'm looking at this in a new light and kind of going, right, I have a new insight that I wouldn't have had even two years ago. And going... I'm really lucky to have those stories and that excuse to look at it in fresh, with a fresh pair of eyes. Um, and part of what I'm doing is thinking about how we might start communicating that. Um, but then I think the media portrayals of religion are a far bigger problem than one 25-year-old graduate <laughs> can deal with. Well, I mean, have you, have you... I know that you're... You're kind of laser focused at the moment on finishing, yeah, which no, there, I there completely can that. understand. <laughs> believe me, but have you given any kind of thought towards doing some kind of public servicey? Why don't we think about these things? Type stuff. So I've had a couple of thoughts. Um, one is, so my funding body requires that everything I publish is open access, which I am broadly behind. It's not going to make me any money anyway, so it might as well be complicated <laughs> for um, And something that oral historians do, but um, no one else seems to really have picked up on, is they embed sound bites in their writing. So right. when an open access oral history uh, paper becomes available online or attached to an archive, you can click on the quotes. And rather than being able to do anything about that, because I haven't got ethical permission, I'm kind of kicking myself for having not retrospectively or you know, proactively gone and got the permission to yeah. be able to put those standbys in. Um, but I'm thinking about things like, you know, having other people listen to quotes and recreate them in a way that kind of gets that that visceral, vocal, maybe even visual dimension uh, into this work. And certainly, even if I can't do that for this PhD going forward, if I'm dealing with emotion and people and religion again in the future, 
I want to be able to embed that in a much more kind of multimedia way rather than our, our tradition of kind of going for stale black and white articles, um, which I think is changing, but maybe the yeah. old historians are a bit further ahead um, than we are. And then the other thing um, I'm probably thinking about in slightly more realistic terms is publishing my PhD, not only as an academic monograph, which is obviously the gold standard, ref, 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 um, but also publishing it as a kind of set of medical memoirs. Now, medical memoirs are all the rage at the moment. Um, again, could not have predicted that when I started my PhD. Um, so things like Adam Kay's um, autobiography, which is called This Is Going To Hurt, um, that's the most famous example, but there's all kinds. Um, I've read a couple of really, really good ones. One is by a kind of pioneering cardiologist um, who retired recently and wrote his memoirs about um, heart surgery. That's called, oh dear, it'll come to me, it's fine. Um, it's another one by uh, an intensive care doctor from the US who called Dr. Rana Ordish. That's called, um, oh my goodness, why have I not written these down? Because um, <laughs> I don't have preset questions. No, that's all. Um, come to me. Anyway, Rana Ordish was a um, ICU doctor in the US, and then she nearly died and ended up a patient on her own ward. Um, and writes about her time on that ward, time in recovery, and what she kind of did off the back of that. Um, particularly the fact that she could hear while everyone else thought she was in a coma, and so she could hear everyone talking about her as though she was already dead. Um, and she said, that has got to change. Um, so that was fascinating. That's a really, really good one. Um, and then there's a book called Also Human, um, and that is about medical students, uh, written from the perspective of a careers advisor who deals with them once they've quit medicine, going, <laughs> what went wrong, basically. So those, yeah, some examples. I would love to kind of get my finger in that kind of medical memoir pie and write up in a kind of more free way, a more narrative way, a way that goes, maybe you don't need an 8,000 word methodology, maybe I can shove that in the back and you're not bothered about it. Yeah. Maybe I'm going to start by talking to you about Gwen and Mel and all these people. Um, because partly, these people have given me their stories and I don't want to force them to read a 100,000 word PhD because I'm under no illusions that it'll be boring. Um, I hope my supervisors will read it, I hope the examiners enjoy it, but you know, even my husband has said he won't read it and so to that end, I'm going to have to do something else. And so I am thinking about, yeah, some kind of narrative, story-based journey through those stories that looks at these people as people, as well as kind of evangelical doctors, you know, they're not just data. Um, and does a little bit in terms of kind of taking academic discourse into the public realm. Yeah. Um, so going, right, here's an idea about evangelical identity. How do I make this accessible to someone who's never heard of Christian Smith? Um, so, you know, 99.9% of the population. Sorry, Christian Smith. I think you're great. Um, <laughs> oh, no, I teach you about Christian Smith another day. Um, <laughs> so, so, yes, yeah, so publishing something like that. And maybe rather than the chapters being about, you know, various different worldview consequences, maybe write a chapter on abortion that just goes, this is wrong. You need to start thinking about this in a completely different way. And it'll probably be just me with a hobby horse going, guys, you need to change. <laughs> but it's an option. And, you know, it's probably naive to think I'll ever have any currency beyond a teeny tiny realm of people. But I think the only other way we can do it is by changing the way that RS is taught in schools. And I have no power there. Yeah. Although, I, you know, a lot of my friends are now kind of graduating master's level and going, right, I want to teach RS. Um, 
I didn't do well at GCSE. That's probably quite important to understanding my career. Um, it wasn't compulsory, and I didn't like the way it was taught at my school, and so I didn't do it. Um, so it's a real cosmic joke that I'm here, um, or possibly no coincidence that I'm here, because as far as I can tell from my sisters, it's taught in a way that just goes, you know, paper on abortion or medical ethics, and you go, start every paragraph with, Christians believe X, Y, Z, Muslims believe X, Y, Z, and my entire PhD is just taking that, shredding it, and going, let's start all over again, because yeah. that's just not how I mean, it really works. It's a problem that we have with first mm. years of every time that they come in, and we have to go, okay, everything you, you think know. this is, it's not that. I'm going to blow your mind. Let's um, think about different people. <laughs> exactly. And so that's, yeah. So maybe, and maybe the other way to do that is to, yeah, I love teaching at this university. Uh, I did it last year. It was a great privilege. I had a really, really good time. Um, I think my students didn't hate me, which is great. Most of them graduated. Um, uh, Sounds good stuff. <laughs> uh, but this year I'm teaching, yeah, teaching first years for the first time. So it'll be a good chance to kind of try and have that slightly formative influence at that early stage. Hopefully without They're fun. Them. First years are fun. Yeah. I, I think I was a fun first year. I hated studying religion when I started. It was, yeah, it was blowing my mind too much. And here I am. <laughs> have I ever told you about how I had a student who, in the middle of one of my seminars, had the realisation that things can be different based on your perspective? What? And Vivian, stop. I mean, <laughs> stop with this witchcraft. It was, it was one of those moments where you're like, as a, as a teacher, you're trying not to like look at her and go, yeah, duh. But, you know, it's, it's a really important moment that she's having. She's never had to think think about yeah. it that way yeah. before and and of course I mean you could tell that she probably also realized it was a very obvious thing to say as soon as she said it but you know that it was in that moment of thinking about something really complicated um I'm trying to remember what it was that we were, I think we were talking about martyrdom versus terrorism versus revolutionaries and and all of those kinds so of issues. my perspective is pretty critical. Exactly. Yeah. And, and because I forced those kinds of questions on yeah. them to make them realize those things. And, and she did finally have that moment. And, of course, there was another student that was looking at her like, yeah, no, duh. But, but it was, I mean, it's a, the, that's the year where you get those, those moments. Yeah, and, and I remember amazing. it being, you know, troubling. I remember sitting there going, I don't know what's going on anymore. I thought I was going to be taught about the samsara cycle. And I would go away <laughs> understanding. And turns out I have never studied the samsara cycle as part of my degree or my master's or my PhD. And I'm okay. I don't need to know. If I need to know, there's a textbook. There are people I can ask. Um, Here's Wikipedia. <laughs> I did have a student reference. I had a student reference Wikipedia last year. I was very gentle with them. I have a lot of students who only have five, you're going to have to redact this, who only have five references in their, their bibliography, and one of them was The Guardian. I was like, what do I do? Yeah, I had someone, where, again, this will all be edited out, don't worry about it, but I had a student in one of the Islam ones. Mm -hmm. No, it was just about Islam, but it was for study religion. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they were talking about the main tenets of Islam and cited a BBC article. And I was like, you, I mean, we're given a textbook that has, like, basic info mm -hmm. about every religion in it. But yeah, you go for both sides. Just cite, I'm like, even if you read it on the BBC thing, just find it in the book yeah. and cite it. Like, that's fine. And having to teach them, like, you know, you can go on Wikipedia and find the sources that they used and then go to those. <laughs> I won't know you were at Wikipedia for We all do it. We just pretend. <laughs> it's all one massive lie. Um... Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to teaching classes. When it, when it comes to your kind of, like, performative oral history, but not mm. history thing. Oh, yeah, no, sorry. My main issue with oral historians is that they are too hung up on history. I'm like, I'm yeah, yeah, no, no, I just meant, I like, care about history. Yeah, I just meant when you were talking yeah, about yeah, that, yeah. that thing, but doing it not yeah. 
as a historian, obviously. Um, Stealing the good stuff. <laughs> just taking what's useful. Um, have you thought about performing it yourself? Because if you're currently going through it as well, then mm. obviously you're going to have some kind of emotional tie that maybe yeah, so I pulling like someone it, like, say, myself to do wouldn't uh, really work. It probably wouldn't. And I think that's... It's a, it's a toss-up, isn't it, between recognising that it probably wouldn't work as well and knowing that even when I have to listen to recording back and transcribe my interviews... I cannot stand the sound of my own voice. I'm never going to listen to this video. <laughs> it's fine. No one else will listen to this one. You're in a good boat. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, if, theoretically, I think that's a great idea, but I'd have to get a bit braver and grow some slightly thicker skin, I think, before I could hack that and get rid of the bags under my eyes that have got worse and worse and worse over the last two years. Oh, so you can record your face as well? Yeah. Oh, see, that's too much. <laughs> I never record my face. But yeah, I, I mean, I've gotten okay with the voice. Like, I can't get okay with the maybe face. one day I'll get okay with the voice, and that'll be a good a good plane on which to to operate. Uh, maybe, maybe one day our understanding of gender will be sufficiently fluid that like I could pretend to be a retired male GP. Speaking of which, have was the transgender come up much in your? Yeah, and that was a bit of a surprise. Right. Okay. Um, so it's only come up in a few interviews, and that's generally been with psychiatrists. So they're the ones who are dealing with this as a kind of psychiatric phenomenon rather than a social phenomenon. Okay. Couple. I'll, I'll get that. Don't worry. Don't worry. <laughs> um, so the odd GP has kind of dealt with it, but it had been once, and then have referred it to a psychiatrist. Now that might be problematic in itself, but. We're yeah. not here as a normative lens, we're here as academics. It's fine. Yes, that's why I'm um, trying not to. Yeah, no, I know. Um, so, and it's an interesting issue because obviously I come from a very kind of left-leaning background. I'm at a university where we're very much, I think, dealing with trans rights in a way that I think is healthy. And then I go in, into an interview context with a relatively conservative evangelical and I'm like, right, you're going to sit on your hands. But actually I've been pleasantly surprised most of the time. So they're dealing it with a, a psychiatrist because they get landed with it, not because they necessarily think it's a psychiatric problem. Okay. Um, not a problem at all, in fact. Um, and they will be going, look at this individual human, at where they are in their lives, and they're usually dealing with teenagers, and going, is this a gender issue or is this a psychosis? And sometimes, apparently, it's not very clear. I really wouldn't know. I'm very, very much white and hypersexual, for which I can only apologise. Um... So, but what they what frightens them is that they don't feel they understand it scientifically, and that's quite interesting because you'd expect conservative evangelicals to go in and go, "God made Adam and Eve. This is not my problem." But actually, that's the opposite of what they're doing. They are not looking and going, "I don't believe this is a problem theologically, so I'm not going to deal with it." They're going, "Right, if this is an issue, we need to understand this scientifically before we can begin to start understanding this theologically." Um, so one guy I interviewed uh, is involved with one of the major churches in Britain um, at a relatively senior level. I hope that won't identify him. Um, and he has therefore had to deal with this at a kind of a policy level. And his worry is not that there's no such thing as transgender or that, oh, society's inventing new genders, because he's like, no, clearly there are people for whom gender is a really difficult thing and for whom transition and hormone therapy is absolutely the right course of action. His worry is that everything is racing ahead too fast and the science hasn't caught up. And he talked actually about the way in which some universities won't touch research into transgender issues because they think it's too political. Oh. Which is an interesting reflection on kind of the state of higher education and the way in which some things get 
redacted um, yeah. Yeah, platformed. And that was quite, yeah, so interesting on all sorts of levels, the transgender issue. But yeah, so I come with my own baggage, if we want to use that word, uh, about conservative evangelicalism. Every so often I've gone into an interview going, right, I reckon I know what you think. And I've been completely dumbfounded when, so I've interviewed a couple of people from my home church, which is a very conservative church. Um, it has many strengths, um, but I do struggle with its theology. Um, and I've interviewed a couple of people who are members of the congregation there who have known me since I was about six, which is a very different dimension of interviewing, but there we go. And I just went, right, we'll chat about homosexuality, but I know what they're going to say. And then I mentioned abortion, and they go, well, obviously I'm absolutely behind abortion. It's completely the right thing to do in some circumstances. And so it's been really healthy for me, actually, to go, maybe you don't understand people as well as you do. Yeah. You do. Um, maybe your own prejudices really do um, you know, blind you in some circumstances. So, yeah, it's been an interesting learning curve. Yeah, the transgender issue is interesting because I just didn't think it would come up. But it so happens that one of my supervisors is a psychiatrist, so I've ended up with a particular kind of emphasis of, um, on some psychiatry in places in my thesis. And, yeah, that seems to be the area where it's, it's popping up most. Um, whether or not that's a problem that maybe GPs need to not refer transgender patients as psychiatric problems. But I'm not going to weigh into that. Um, what's interesting is that they very much come at this as medical scientists, as people who are dealing with individuals and not purely as, let's go into the Bible and decide, let that decide what I think about this. Yeah. They bring in the Bible, absolutely. They're evangelicals, of course they do. Um, but they are looking at this as a situation in which you know, how can I best love this person as a medical doctor, not A, there are only two genders, and that's the only thing I can say on this. So if people want to understand you better as a person and a researcher, uh, where can they find more information? So I don't have Twitter. I need to get my head out of the sand at some point and uh, buckle <laughs> up and, again, grow some thicker skin um, so that I can start broadcasting my world uh, into, into the social media blogosphere. Um, so the easiest place to find me is probably on Durham University's website. If you search for Jennifer Riley, Riley is R-I-L-E-Y, not the other stupid spelling. Um, <laughs> and I'll link it in the description. <laughs> uh, and the other thing that's useful about that is that it gives you a link to my email address, which very helpfully no longer matches my name because I got married halfway through my PhD. <laughs> Do not recommend changing your name at the university level halfway through a PhD because it turns out everyone gets confused. And uh, at one point, your money will stop arriving in your bank account because they haven't updated your name. Um, so that will give you my email address, which uh, is in my maiden name, and I can't bother to spell it because it's too complicated. Um, but you can click on the link. And yeah, I would love to hear from anyone who is interested in my research. But you know, if you're particularly interested in maybe publishing my research, Give me a job. In fact, don't yeah, at that point give me an email. You can I my swear, house. if you if you get a job based off this interview, I demand a percentage. Yeah, I'll give you a cut. It won't be generous. Um, yeah, those are probably the easiest ways. I mean, I have Instagram and Facebook, but I'm a very boring human being on those, and I don't talk about my research because it turns out people in the real world don't really care. Which is really sad, because I think it's the best thing in the world. I love my See, that's why I just don't have friends. <laughs> An excellent solution. <laughs> why didn't I think of that? Well, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Vivian. It's been good. 
Thank you for listening to the Religion and Popular Culture podcast. If you want to know more about Jenny, you can find her at Durham University with her staff page linked in the description below. If you want to find out more about me, you can follow me on Twitter at Simos, and you can also check out our website, god-mode.org. If you want to support me and the show, you can go check out our Patreon, and you can also just give this podcast a nice review. Until next time!